As you take your seats, I invite you to turn in your copies of God's holy and inspired word back to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we are in chapter 5. We are uh, starting to move uh, into uh, the, the paragraph beginning at verse 15, but I want to read uh, once again beginning in verse 6. So we're going to look at Ephesians 5, 6 through 21. No, we are not going to attempt to cover all this, but I want to read it as we uh, continue to let this extremely important section of this letter speak to us as it speaks so clearly to the need that we, of what we need to be reminded of as God's people right now. Ephesians 5, uh, beginning in verse 6, the title of the sermon this morning is The Courage and Wisdom to Expose Darkness. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have revealed these words through the Apostle Paul because they are words that we desperately need. They are words that not only give life, but they give light. And as the children that you have called into the light who have this amazing privilege to, to bear witness to that light, to be conduits of your light, Lord, we find ourselves being pressed in on, on, uh, from every angle where things have, have changed and are continuing to change at such a rapid pace with regards to the culture and circumstances that we live in, that we are bearing witness in. And so fill us with the truth and wisdom of your word that is active 
that is alive, that pierces, that separates, and yet that holds together and gives strength. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In 1981, a, a philosopher by the name of Alistair McIntyre wrote a book called After Virtue. He was writing this book because of the changes that he was seeing in our society, not specifically just tied to differences with regards to actions and attitudes, but a difference that he was finding at a most essential level of culture, and that is how to have shared discourse on morality. What he was noting was that, that the, the morality had changed so greatly that it had filtered even down into the very foundations of what is morality. It had filtered down into the very foundations of how do we go about making moral decisions at all? And one of the things that he noted was that there had been a collapse of the common basis for moral reasoning into what he called emotivism. All evaluative judgments are more specifically, all moral judgments, he said, are nothing more than expressions of preference, expressions of attitude expressions of feeling. He said the sentence, kindness is good, no longer is actually making a truth claim about kindness actually being good, but simply is expressing a, a positive feeling or a preferred experience about kindness. In other words, kindness, yay! You can apply that to murder. Right? Murder is wrong. That's not a truth claim he was arguing. Instead, it is someone giving their personal disapproval of murder. Or another way of saying it is murder? Yuck. Now, he was saying this back in 1981. And I think as we uh, have uh, watched our society develop since the early 80s, we have hardly moved in an opposite direction from that. We have been moving uh, headlong even faster and quicker and deeper and further into that type of moral reasoning. Charles Taylor, a Canadian philosopher, don't hold that against him, as I said last week, has brought up the issue of expressive individualism where the, the moral reasoning category that is being used today is this, what makes me happy? He says each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our own humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious, or political authority. Let me boil that down for you. Thursday at Hannah's graduation, 
we got to hear a speech from the valedictorian. We got to hear a speech from the salutatorian. And they were diametrically opposed to one another in how they were expressing what they were saying. The salutatorian was a Latina who was someone who had gotten to go to the school uh, because she had been picked in the lottery. She was someone who did not live in an area that would have zoned her for Harrison High School. But she got picked in the lottery. She got to go. She was surrounded by a strong family, multiple generations of, of Spanish-speaking family, where she was the first to, to really be you know, an English speaker within her family, within this culture. And she talked about how, how, how she, one, she was so thankful for the school district for giving her the chance through the lottery. She was so grateful for her family as they surrounded her with love and support, as they were that foundation she needed to, to press into this, this new school, this new school district, into a socioeconomic challenge as a Latina in a primarily wealthy white school. And she talked about what her family gave to her and what they meant for her and, and how her mom would, would get maybe loud sometimes with the encouragement and pushing her to do her best. And, and she graduated with a 4.7 GPA. The valedictorian gave a speech that was equally uh, enthusiastic and passionate, but the theme that kept coming through the, the speech was, was what she and what her classmates had brought to their school experience. With encouragements, don't change, never change, keep being who you are. You are great as you are, go out and you share that with the world. You see some differences there? One young lady appealing to what she received from outside of herself to achieve what she was achieving. The other appealing to what she already had within herself that she and others were going to bless others with. This was all put, by the way, in striking contrast to these, these little messages of encouragement that, that, were, that would pop up on the screen where teachers had recorded these little messages of encouragement, which were all so really good. But even there, the common theme coming from the teachers was when you get out into the world and you start dealing with what is there, you know, and, and giving them wisdom about how to respond to what is there, how to respond to what they experience, how to learn, how to grow, how to develop, and yes, you know, how to be a blessing. But do you see the stark contrast here? One is a motivation that I already have everything I need within myself, and so I just need to, to live in a way that makes me happy, and that will bless those around me. And, and the other young lady that said, what I have today is because of all this investment from outside of me. The importance of community 
the importance of family, the importance of actually learning and growing, of actually maturing. This is what these these fancy philosophers have been writing about for years, this change in this fundamental way that people go about the process of moral reasoning. What makes me happy? What gives me the opportunity to bring what I already am in order to bless everyone around me? Not are there realities outside of myself that I'm to learn from. Am I supposed to learn something from my family? Am I supposed to inherit a morality from my family? Am I supposed to inherit a morality from the church? Am I supposed to inherit the wisdom that, of those who have come before and, and learn to make sacrifices and learn to, to, to grow into some kind of conformity to these moral principles? Or do I create my own moral principles and force those on everyone around me? You see the difference? I'm bringing this up because when we started this section of Ephesians 5 two weeks ago, I made the comment to you that as we are dealing with the subject matter here within within this passage, which has to do with uh, sexual morality, has has to deal with mores in general, we find ourselves living in a, at an unprecedented period for us, but not an unprecedented period for the church. The church that Paul was writing to in Ephesus was a church that lived as outsiders of their culture. They were those who were considered to be weird very specifically because of their morality. Because they were not participating, as we talked about, in the immorality of Artemis worship. That they were not participating in the immorality of the festivals and the festivities that took place on a normal public basis in Ephesus. But they were those who who were learning to receive a, a morality that had come from God through his people and had been embodied in the life of Jesus Christ. And what Paul has been saying is, you have been united to Christ. And so you are to live as one who is new in Christ. And I said that if the church doesn't figure out how to do this, the church will lose her witness. The church does not live faithfully bearing witness for Christ by pointing fingers at all the people who, have a, who disagree with us with regards to morality, gender issues, all the stuff that's going on. And what we have seen this week both in terms of the report on abuse for the Southern Baptist Convention and then the study report on abuse 
from our own denomination. What I'm trying to tell you and what I've been trying to get you ready for is that this is not theoretical. What I'm trying to, to help us understand and, and, and as we look at this passage of Scripture where it is so easy to point fingers at those outside because there are obvious things to point fingers at. What I'm trying to help you to see is I think Alistair McIntyre is wrong. I think there is a functioning core, core fundamental basis of moral reasoning that exists within our culture. The problem is it's not the Bible's. It's the world's. Because what has been exposed is that there is practices within these large conservative churches that are the exact opposite of what Paul is talking about here. There is a partnership that has been at work between leaders of the church and the world and their moral principles and the actions that come from them. What was discovered is that, um, that, that what Paul is exposing here is, is not just something he's exposing about culture, he's exposing something about church. There was a consistent pattern of harassing and intimidating survivors of abuse. A concerted effort to silence advocates trying to introduce abuse reform. Resistance to any tangible reform. Continued cover-up of abuse cases. Refusal to report abuse to authorities. And a refusal among the ecclesial authorities to actually take action. Allowing predators to remain in the dark and move around from congregation to congregation, repeating their abuse in which they were, what was discovered is that the leadership of the SBC already had a list of over 700 known people who were serving in their churches who had had these kinds of accusations made against them. And they were being allowed to serve even though there was this secret file with their name on it. There is now new evidence that has come from the report of, of immorality amongst the current top leadership, including one very well-known local minister from Woodstock, who was also very close with the Ravi Zacharias and the spa debacle of the last couple years. The reasons that were given for this approach was that, well, their church polity structure doesn't actually allow for them to do anything. Or that these reports, well, these are just distractions from the real mission of the gospel. Or how about this? If we actually take these things seriously and have to deal with it, well, that might out, that might out us. 
And that's going to cost us in money in terms of having to maybe pay out, you know, because of legal problems. It could cost us money in terms of people not giving money to us anymore. It could cost us with influence with the culture. How are we supposed to continue to point fingers at those outside when we obviously don't have the inside taken care of? One, even, one, one, one group of leaders even suggested that because people were even reporting the abuse and wanted to seek justice and reform, that that, not the sin, the, the reporting the sin was an actual attack from the dark forces. Beloved, Paul says very clearly, we are not to be deceived. We are not to partake in the unfruitful works of darkness. We are not even to speak of them, let alone participate in them. And we are certainly not to cover them up, hide them, or allow them to continue to spread. Paul says, we are light. And that we, as the light, are to expose the darkness. When there was sin in the camp, Phineas brought a spear and pierced it. When there was sin in the nation, jail brought a hammer and a peg. When there is sin in God's people, God provided his son who was pierced by the nails in his hands and his feet. Do you think God is scared of sin being exposed in his own people? Is the gospel mission really threatened by being honest? Is the power of the gospel somehow shortchanged by faithful leaders carrying out their privileged opportunity of leadership in dealing with sin? The irony here is the leadership were scared, and so they decided to let lawyers make decisions for the church. They were scared, and so they, they allowed bad decisions to be made because they thought that was going to somehow secure their power, that it was going to somehow secure their influence, that it was going to somehow, that hiding the darkness was going to somehow make their, the, the mission of the gospel successful. We cannot bear witness for the kingdom of Christ to the world any further than we bear witness for it within the church. We cannot serve as light when we participate with the darkness and refuse to expose it because we do not want to be exposed ourselves or do not have the courage in faith to trust Christ with our sin. Beloved, Though there are not the same details in terms of, of actual instances in the PCA report, make no mistake that all the substance is there as well. I don't bring this up for us to point fingers at the Baptists. Beloved, I want us to be a people who so trust the promise 
of, of Christ, as Paul talks about it right here, that when you expose the darkness, Christ shines on you. That you are willing to take the chance at pointing to your own heart before you point at another's. That you will take the chance for us as a church to point the finger at ourselves before we point it at the world. And here's why. If we can start, right? If judgment can start with the household of God, I think someone else said that in the Bible. If we can start with our hearts, and then if we can start with our community, guess what that does? That is what sets us up to speak to those who are on the outside. If we can't live up to the, to the truth that God has revealed in Christ for ourselves, why would anyone listen to us? Dr. Al Mohler, who was one of my professors when I first started seminary, uh, in responding to the SBC report, made a very strong case that what the Baptists have to do now is they have to take this seriously and they have to respond well and they have to do what needs to happen to be done because the world is watching to see how they will respond and to that he is also wrong. Because the world has been watching and what they have seen is the wrong and they are laughing at the hypocrisy. Now, this doesn't mean that we are in an unredeemable moment, because what does Paul tell us right here? Redeem the time, because the days are evil. The only hope that the church has ever had in being a redemptive element within God's creation is insofar as we trust the promises of Christ and will we'll strive to embody those things within ourselves, especially when it is costly, especially when it might mean exposing things within us in order to deal with them, in order to put them to death. And beloved, I'm sorry. But if you haven't read the history of the church in America, then you just really don't understand how far back this problem goes and how deeply seated our fear is of dealing with the truth. What Paul's telling us here is we don't have to fear that. Because there is a promise that if we will awake, and if we will expose, Christ will shine. That Christ will work through that. And that should not surprise us. Because what is the theology of the cross other than that Jesus Christ works through suffering? That he works through taking up a cross that he works by way of, of not being the one that, that at least looks like he's in power. We know he was, but his life certainly didn't look like it as, as he went from town to town as someone who did not have a home, as someone who did not have a lot of earthly treasures, as someone who certainly did not wield very much influence with the spiritual elite within Israel, let alone the Roman government. 
He exercised so much influence that he died. And yet, that is what the gospel is about. Taking up your cross, following Christ into his death in order that we might also experience the power of his resurrection. Paul spent all of Ephesians 1 unfolding those details. It's a beloved for us right now. What we are being called to do in this moment, not just because we're here in this part of Ephesians right now, but because of the cultural moment in which we are now living and ministering, and because of the cultural setting that your children and my children and my grandchildren will be living and serving, things have changed And standing for the truth of God in Christ is now going to take courage. Not anger. Courage. It's real easy to get angry at where things are and say, well, we're going to stand up for Jesus and we're going to point out how awful everybody is. No, that's anger. What Paul calls us to is the courage to trust Christ and to be ministers of his light by standing as those who are incorporating that light for ourselves, exposing the darkness within ourselves in order to earn an opportunity in a culture of darkness to shine a light. When Paul is writing to the Ephesians, they had no standing in their communities. And at this point in the early 60s, the the emperor worship had not yet firmly taken hold. So even as Paul writes this, things are about to get worse for them. And yet this is the call to, as children of light, to be children of light. And what that means for us is that the whole of the life of the church community is to be a living symbol that illustrates God's calling for humankind. And so it starts with us. In what ways have you been flirting with a theology of what makes me happy? In what ways have you been flirting with this, this idea of individual or expressive individualism? In what ways have you been tempted to, to make decisions and take actions, not only with regards to your own morality, but as you've had these conversations with those in the community, how often is it easy to be tempted to say what is good for thee, but not me. When Anne stood on the bridge, there on the beautiful lands and properties of Green Gables, talking to Gil, bringing the story of 
many, many hours to a conclusion. She says, I went looking for my ideals outside of myself. I've discovered it's not what the world holds for you. It's what you bring to it. Beloved, that is expressive individualism. That is the same moral reasoning that leads someone who's born one gender to say that they are another. And it's the same thing that can lead us in the way we make our decisions with how we go about dealing with sin within ourselves and certainly with regards to the way that we go about trying to carry out the ministry of the cross. Where we want to avoid it, we don't want to embrace it, we like the content and the words, but we don't necessarily like the experience. But beloved, you are not greater than your master. And this is the way in which God has promised to us in Christ that we will bear witness for the kingdom. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask for your help because there have been such vast changes in the the last couple decades. So many changes, Lord, just within my lifetime. That when things move so quickly and when it becomes so difficult to to sense the shifts and to to know uh, how to prepare for the, the, the new conditions, Lord, sometimes what happens is your people find themselves not ready, not prepared, and therefore we do not respond well. And so fill us with your grace. Not only that grace that that brings forgiveness, but that that grace that gives us the strength in order to live up more and more to who you already count us to be in Jesus Christ. And so help us to cultivate the gospel within our own hearts and within our own community that we would truly be experiencing Christ and embracing him at deeper levels, exposing ourselves to him and with greater degrees of trust and then earning that that opportunity of, of expressing Christ to those who are in desperate need. But Father, help us never to forget our own desperate need so that we will not take these things for granted to fix other people, but that we, as those who taste and see that you are good, are able to invite others into something that they are missing out on, that they are in desperate need of. Father, help us to be those who invite, and with the courage and humility of Christ to do so without anger, without bitterness, and certainly without retreat and without fear. For this is the way of Christ, and there are great promises that stand for your church, stand at the foot of his cross. 
is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.